Welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free, so you won't miss an episode. And ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com, and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. When putting together this episode of the podcast, I reflected on what my late husband and I had said when our children were young, we want it for them when they became adults. We wanted them to be happy, healthy, and able to afford the toys they would want to buy. We wanted our two sons and our daughter to be confident and kind, and we wanted them to know how to cook, to do their laundry, and to change a flat tire. We were not perfect parents, but as I watched my now adult children, I know we gave them a firm foundation and the skills they needed to become contributing members of society. In short, we raised emotionally competent people. Emotional competence is the focus of part one of today's podcast. Positive discipline is the focus of part two. Each guest is an author, and each guest will give us tips on how to raise well-adjusted human beings. We've all been there. Our child is in the grocery store pitching a fit, and all of the eyes are on us. And what do we do? Our first guest, Doug Knoll, an award-winning trial lawyer for 22 years before pivoting his focus to mediation and peacemaking, says to ignore any bystander and for the next 90 seconds, focus exclusively on your child who is having the meltdown. I invited him to be a guest because of his passion for teaching parents, grandparents, and educators why understanding child development and using appropriate discipline strategies lead to children becoming resilient, emotionally competent adults. His credentials, which I've listed in the show notes, are extensive and impressive. Our conversation draws upon his book, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, published September 2017 by Simon & Schuster. Doug also was the winner of the Book Excellence Award in 2017. I was born and raised in Southern California, went to Dartmouth College, came back to California, and ultimately went to law school in Sacramento at McGeorge School of Law, did well in law school, and had offers all over the state to go to work, and decided that I would work for a judge for a year. And I love the mountains, and I actually live in the mountains now, south of Yosemite National Park in California. So I moved to Central California and clerked for an appellate judge for a year and then went into private practice. And for the next 22 years, I was a hardcore trial lawyer. And through a series of events that I won't bore everybody with, I made the decision that although I was an excellent trial lawyer and tried over 200 jury trials, arbitrations, bench trials, things like that over my career, it really wasn't my calling. So I went back to school and obtained my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. 
and that degree was offered by Fresno Pacific University, which is the West Coast Mennonite school. The Mennonites are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches, and so I was trained by peacemakers. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. So, and ultimately I left uh, my law practice in 2000, left my firm where I was a senior partner, and opened up my mediation and peacemaking practice. As I studied for my master's degree, although I learned a lot about human conflict, what the one thing that I was not taught was skills for de-escalating angry people. Basically, what I was taught was the same thing that everybody learns, which is active listening, which comes from the work of Roger Gordon in the 1960s. He's a psychologist, a colleague of Carl Rogers, and he invented the term active listening. And unfortunately, his work has been completely misinterpreted. And so people were using these I statements and thinking that was active listening. And as anybody who has ever tried it before knows, that when you use an I statement on somebody to de-escalate them, all it does is get people angry. And I had a problem because I was a mediator being called into high-conflict cases where people were really, really angry. And I had to figure out ways to de-escalate them. And I finally stumbled on a process just by pure happenstance. Three years, that was in 2004. Three years later, neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman published his brain scanning studies describing exactly what I had discovered and why it worked so well. And this is a process known as APIC labeling. So now I had neuroscience to support what empirically worked for me in the field really, really well. And I began to teach it. In 2010, with my colleague Laurel Coffer, we began the Prison of Peace Project. And for the next last 10 years, really, since 2010, today's, we're in 2021, I've been teaching lifers and long-termers in maximum security prisons how to become peacemakers and mediators. And the first skill we teach them is how to listen, how to listen to emotions, this affect labeling. And it's been absolutely transformative for every single inmate we've taught. Now our, we're in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 14 prisons in Greece, and we've got startups in Kenya, Nairobi, and also in Italy. Of course, we're on hiatus because of the pandemic, but we hope to get back into the prisons uh, late this year, or maybe, maybe next year. So we acid tested these skills, and the inmates started pestering me for a book because they knew that I was an author. I'd written three books, and so I finally consented. And in 2016, I wrote Deescalate. It was picked up immediately by Simon & Schuster. We didn't expect it to be published until I turned the final manuscript in right at Thanksgiving of 2016. We didn't expect it to be published until 2018 or 2019. But we got a call in February of 2017. And apparently the chief executive officer of Atria, which is a subdivision of Simon & Schuster, um, had read the manuscript and told everybody in the company, what's the fastest we can get this book published? So it came out in September of 2017, one of the fastest turnarounds of any book in publishing history, six months from start to finish. And it's become a bestseller and is in four languages. It's in its second printing. And from there, people wanted to start learning this stuff. So I developed online courses for grandparents, as a matter of fact, on how to use these skills to calm angry people down. And what I've learned is that uh, I've learned a lot. And these skills are absolutely critical for raising healthy, emotionally competent, non-dysfunctional children. Every parent, every grandparent should know these skills and be using them with their children. But that's, that's how it started. What are some ways you can de-escalate an impending meltdown? What do you do? I've got the secret, and you'll stop the meltdown in about 90 seconds. And I've had reports of parents and grandparents who say after using these skills on their children or grandchildren over a four- or five-month period, the meltdowns go away. That's that powerful. The secret is to ignore the words and listen to the child's emotions. The reason that children have meltdowns is because they're on emotional overload. They're tired, 
their brain is overloaded with stimulus and they just can't take it anymore. They go into a meltdown mode because it's the brain's way, the child's brain's way of protecting the child from damage. Most people look at meltdowns as being this crazy thing that these two and three and four year olds do. And we look at it like it's horrible when in fact, it's, the, it's the, one of the most important things a child can go through. So the question is, how do we help a child work through this? The way we do it is to ignore their words, listen to their emotions, and reflect back their emotions with a very simple use statement. Say, oh, you're really angry. You're really tired. You're really frustrated. Nobody's listening to you. You're all alone. You don't feel loved. You feel like you're all abandoned. Those are the kinds of things that children feel. And it's not whether or not those statements are true or not. What you're really trying to do is reflect what the child is experiencing emotionally in the moment. And you reflect it back with the use statement. Now, what's happening from a neurophysiological level is that the child has lost control of his or her prefrontal cortex. And of course, children don't have much impulse control to begin with. So they're totally emotional beings. And what you're doing is lending your prefrontal cortex to the child for the time that it takes for that child's prefrontal cortex to come back online to the extent that it can. And once the pre, the, what the scanning studies show are when, the, when, as that happens, the emotional centers of the brain calm down and calm is restored in about 45 to 90 seconds. And it works every single time without fail because our brains are hardwired for this kind of input. Every single human brain on the planet responds the same way to this kind of input. But the secret is to, is to use a you statement, not an I statement. You are wherever the emotions are. So for a meltdown, it's going to be anger, frustration, maybe rage, feeling unappreciated, not listened to, feeling sad, feeling grief, feeling unloved, feeling abandoned. Those are the basic ones for children. And, if you and you just keep repeating these emotions back and forth, and, he and it'll penetrate unconsciously into the child's brain, and then miraculously, the child will calm down. The child will say, yeah, yeah sobbing a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And then instant calm. I've actually seen that with one of my grandsons. He tends to become emotional. I've said that to him, not realizing that that was something I was supposed to do, but just instinctively did it. And it really works. It is remarkable. It's powerful. It's, it is powerful, but it's also hard if you're in a situation such as at the grocery store, you have a couple of other kids with you, and then you feel intense pressure because all of the other shoppers are staring at you, and you begin to feel like you're a horrible mother or you're a horrible grandmother because you've allowed this child to act out like this. I know that people feel that way, but what you're doing is judging yourself on, on standards that are absolutely false mythical standards, and that is that children are going to be well-behaved all the time in public no matter what. Children are messy. They're emotional. They have limited stamina, emotional stamina. We have to expect meltdowns and breakdowns as a normal course of business. And people in, in grocery stores or other public places who judge parents or grandparents because their children are having a meltdown are wrong to do that. And you just have to ignore them. They're ignorant, stupid people that don't know anything about child physiology. And they don't know anything about childhood development. So ignore them. They don't know what they're thinking. You don't have to be judged by them. What you need to do in that moment is focus on that child for 45 to 90 seconds. And in that time period, you can calm that child down and stop the meltdown, as long as you put your entire focus on the child. There was a post that came across my Facebook feed the other day 
It was about a nine-year-old who was having a meltdown. And this woman said, well, I know a young boy who's not going to be getting X. The next line of the post says from a six-year-old, my brother has autism and he's having a hard time controlling his emotions. Please be quiet. And I thought, bravo, you have a six-year-old standing up for her older brother. But not only that, you have a child who now we know is acting out because his prefrontal cortex doesn't work the way a typical child's does anyway. Right. So he already is at a disadvantage. And now you have this meltdown. And I really felt proud of this little six-year-old for saying that. Right. I, I, I really applaud that. Uh, by the way, this does work extremely well with children that are suffering on the autistic spectrum. And it also works really well with children who have Asperger's. I've gotten email after email from parents and grandparents with children who are suffering from these disorders, telling them how these techniques have completely changed the child. It's critical that we, we know this stuff. I'm on a mission to teach parents and grandparents how to do this stuff because it turns out that 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. Sad to say that most parents are emotionally incompetent themselves. They were taught by their grandparents, the people that are listening to us, who were probably themselves emotionally incompetent. This knowledge is very new, but it changes everything. And we can keep kids out of prison. We can keep them off drugs. We can keep them from dysfunctional behavior if we simply listen them into existence. And we do that by listening to and responding to their emotions. It's a foundational skill of life, and it's the most powerful gift a parent or a grandparent can give to a child, listening to their emotions. And I also believe parents and grandparents need to recognize not putting children in situations that will cause a meltdown. Of course. For instance, don't go to the grocery store if you haven't fed them lunch. Don't allow them to expect that you're going to buy candy if you know very well going in that you're not going to. And the powerful word no, if you said no the first time, continue to say no, because a lot of times when a child nags and nags and nags and you give in, that's just setting up the entire family for failure. That's correct. I always wonder why people have children. They don't understand that they're making a commitment for the rest of their lives and definitely a commitment for the next 20 plus years of taking, uh, informing a human being out of this, out of this person, this little baby, or actually in utero. It start, I mean, the brain starts to form in utero in the second trimester, and here's something to think about, the neurons start to form at 250,000 neurons per second, and that continues all the way up until birth. Now think about what happens if you have alcohol and you're pregnant, or you smoke anything, tobacco, marijuana, whatever, or you're in a stressful environment, or you're not emotionally safe yourself. What's going on with, those, with, those, with that brain developing as fast as it is during this, the second and third trimester of pregnancy. Babies that are born into stressful situations are at an extreme disadvantage because their brains aren't forming properly. Fortunately, you know, the brains are extremely plastic and you can overcome a lot of that. But if you take a baby who has been stressed in utero and the brain hasn't formed properly, and then they're born into a stressful environment that's emotionally dysfunctional, that baby's gonna have a lot of problems growing up. And I know I've worked with the, with the end result, murderers and gangbangers, some of the most violent, human beings I've ever met, who, by the way, turned out to be really brilliant peacemakers, but they end up in prison. Parents have to take the time to learn how, how children's brains develop. We aren't born with emotion. We're born with affect. That's a, the biological 
feelings that go on. And we have to learn how to convert that affect into emotions. That start process starts at around 18 months of age. And we expect a two-year-old or a three-year-old to be emotionally mature. That's ridiculous. The brain doesn't come to full maturity until 25 years old. Hertz and Avis and all the car rental companies know that they will not rent to a person under 25 years old. Why? Because the brain isn't fully developed. And they can't make people until they're 25 years old, they can't make good decisions. They, they lack impulse control. At 25, they finally grow up. And yet we expect a two-year-old to behave like an adult. And then we get frustrated and impatient when a child acts out or melts down. I mean, to me, it's, that is absolutely abusive. And yet that's what so many parents, and to some degree grandparents, do. They are intolerant of the fact that their children are growing and have to learn and have to have a lot of these experiences in order to be healthy and competent adults. How do you propose that parents learn these skills? Doing podcasts like this, <laughs> getting the word out. <laughs> Here's the problem. Here We've got a structural problem in our society. is a huge impediment, and that is that for the four, past 4,000 years, Western culture has been based on a lie. And the lie is that human beings are rational. That's a lie. And it's been perpetrated by Aristotle and Plato, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. It was He introduced Neoplatonism as the foundation for Catholic theology, where rationality is prime. Immanuel Kant and all the philosophers of the 17th century brought this forward. And even today, people, the whole, our whole educational edifice is based on the idea that human beings are rational. But what neuroscience is teaching us is completely different. And that is that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. We can't even be rational unless we're emotional first. So we have to abandon the idea that we are rational beings and adopt and grab the idea that we are emotional beings. And that means we have to start devoting a whole bunch of resources to learning how to be emotionally competent. And that's how we change this. And we've got to get all these professors of education at all our ed universities that teach are teaching the new teachers. They have to get out of this idea that we're rational. And they have to start teaching teachers that students are emotional. And once they start, once make, we make that mind shift, then we can start thinking about emotions as not something to be avoided, but something to be embraced. It's our hidden genius. And so we want to develop our emotional competency starting at 18 months. Well, actually starting at, at insemination. We want to start building emotional competency. I have said for so long that if we as a society really valued children, we would put so much money behind true education, true child development research, and teach high school students how to be good parents so that when they do become parents, they have a solid background in honest child development research and child psychology. I absolutely agree with that. I, I absolutely agree with and that. I, I'll just say this. We could eliminate prisons. We could eliminate prisons off the planet if we could teach young people how to be good, good parents and raising their children in a responsible, competent way. We would get rid of prisons. You are the first person who has ever agreed with me, and I so <laughs> thank you for saying that. You're welcome. People look at me like I'm from an outer space when I said, it's ridiculous that we keep building prisons and building prisons, and in some localities you have two and three courthouses, all of this money spent on the justice system, and none of it is spent on helping families 
with honest to goodness nutrition and education and childhood development education. Absolutely. And it makes me so sad. Yeah, don't get me started on this, Carolyn. (laughs) I've spent 10 years working in prisons and I, you know, and I've worked with the worst and they are the best in many ways. It, in California, we spend we spend almost as much money on our correctional system and our prison system and our court system as we spend on education. It's beyond ridiculous. I'm surprised it's not more. It's close. I taught high school, and by the high school level, you have reached a point if that prefrontal cortex has not been developed well, and you haven't learned strategies to develop it, and you usually have learning differences with that kids with ADHD, autism, you know, emotional disabilities. They don't know how to read often. They, they don't do math very well. They come to the ninth grade thinking that they're stupid and you see these children act out in school and then you see them suspended and out on the streets and expelled. Right. And I think that it's so dangerous. And I've had the opportunity to work with some of these students before they got to the point of being expelled. And what you said at the beginning about honoring their emotions, whether it is right or wrong, that's how that child is feeling right then. And if you don't acknowledge it, you're not going to get any place with that child. That's correct. By honoring that emotion, I've had students tell me, just like I told you about, you know, my philosophy, they'll say, Ms. Barry, you're the first person who's ever listened to me. That's right. And I feel honored by that, but at the same time, incredibly sad that this child has reached ninth, 10th, 11th grade and felt like no adult cared enough to listen. That's right. I call it emotional safety. And you can see that kids are shut down as adolescents because they don't feel emotionally safe because their parents have unintentionally emotionally abused them from the time they were little babies by emotionally invalidating. So what do I mean by that? So how many times have you said to a kid, don't cry, stop crying, grow up, be a manly man, don't be a sissy, don't be a drama queen, and hundreds of phrases like that. How many times do you think kids hear that in their lives? All the time. That's emotional invalidation and it is the most insidious and pervasive form of emotional abuse that exists. And parents do this unthinkingly and unconsciously for two reasons. One, they don't know any better, and it was probably how they were raised. But two, they are soothing their own anxiety that arises when a child becomes emotional because they themselves, the parents, are not emotionally competent and do not know how to properly manage their anxiety around their child's emotions. The story you gave, the classic story you gave earlier where you're in a grocery store and the kid's having a meltdown and now all of a sudden you're anxious because you're worried about how people are judging you. That to me is a sign of emotional immaturity. It's a sign of not being able to manage your own anxiety that will allow you to focus on your child's emotions and help that child through that moment. And it's criminal. It's criminal and yet everybody does it. Are you familiar with the ACEs study out of San Diego? Adverse Childhood Experiences Study? Every parent should read that. Every parent should Google ACES, A-C-E-S, Kaiser, Kaiser Foundation Study. Without going into a lot of detail, Kaiser got really interested in what the relationship was of childhood abuse to later medical outcomes, because Kaiser medical model is to keep people out of the hospital. What they found was that 
children who had at least three incidences of abuse, and they defined abuse pretty broadly to include the kind of things that I'm talking about, three ACEs, 10 times more likely to end up in prison, 10 times more likely to, be, uh, to smoke or to be addicted, 100 times more likely to have a divorce, 1,000 times more likely to die of cancer, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, heart disease. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Emotional abuse in childhood is a direct, is a direct precondition to horrible life outcomes. And yet, parents abuse their children on a daily basis by invalidating their emotions. They have no idea what they're doing. I obviously am very passionate about this and have strong feelings about it because I've seen the outcomes in prison. Completely unnecessary. And I haven't seen it to the extent you have because I've never worked in prisons, but I, I've seen it in the high schools sure. where, you know, these kids, I mean, it breaks my heart. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that there have been two incidences that, that I, I know of, two incidences where I did not conduct myself in reaction to an outburst the way I should have professionally. And I've always regretted that. It's difficult. I want to just say something here. It's not difficult. These skills can be mastered in a matter of weeks. They can be, I can literally teach anybody these skills in two or three weeks. I mean, if you just read my book, you can learn these skills. It is just, and I've got a course out there called Developing Emotional Competency for less than $200. Take this course. You will master these skills. It will change your life forever. And, it, and if it doesn't, I'll give you your money back. You can learn, you, anybody can learn these skills. I mean, Caroline, I've been teaching murderers how to do this stuff. Here's a quick story. I mean, we started with 17 women in March of 2010 in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world. Today, all but three of those women have been released. And they're all living incredible lives because of what we taught. So, so if I can teach a murderer how to do this stuff, I think I can probably teach a parent or a grandparent. So there's just no, it's, it is, it's difficult if you don't have the skills. But once you have the skills, it's easy peasy. Your life completely changes. In a school system, it starts in the universities in teacher education programs. That's right. That's where it starts. I, I have taught teachers, high school teachers and middle school teachers, these skills. It baffles me why the school district didn't have me back to do more teaching, but I understand school districts are very bureaucratic places. But I will tell you, I got emails from these teachers at, at both middle school and high school levels who say, I save their lives. When they apply these schools tools in the classroom, they no longer have discipline problems, zero discipline problems. And their students are so loyal and so dedicated to them, they'll do anything for their teachers because the teacher takes the time to listen them into existence. Well, that's what I meant about difficult when you work in a system that doesn't embrace that. You do it anyways. It doesn't, once you learn the skill, it becomes, it becomes as easy as breathing. And you just do it naturally. Okay. Once you learn it and practice it, it's just natural. And now you're, you're relating to the kids on a completely different level than you ever have before. And you don't have to think about it because you're doing it. You, just, you live it. And this practice is so, it's self-reinforcing and self-affirming because as you begin to listen people into existence, they are immediately deeply grateful for you. From the, from the two-year-old to the 16-year-old to the 70-year-old, they're deeply grateful that you've taken the time to give them the gift of validation to validate them emotionally. And so each time you do this, you get this huge wave of gratitude from the person you've listened to, and it just makes you want to do it even more. I'm picturing myself in the classroom about how I could have handled a couple of situations differently. And I so agree with you. That is definitely a good point. So what is the name of your book? Mm -hmm. My book is called De-Escalate, 
How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. And it's available in all the usual places. You can get it online or go to my website, dougnoll.com, N-O-L-L-D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com, and you can find my book there. You can get it in all the usual places. The, the way I wrote Deescalate was through the trajectory of life. So the first three chapters lay out the science and why it works and the discovery and some stories, the prison stories. And then the rest of the chapters start with working with young children and babies, or actually starting with relationships, dating, and then marriage, and then child rearing, young children, teenagers, working with adults, working with friends. And it just goes through the whole arc of life, giving example after example of how to use these skills in helping people when they're emotional. Very powerful. And if people want to learn more, like I said, I've got a, I've got online courses. If you go to dougnoll.com and just go on the courses menu item, you'll get to the courses that will where I teach this stuff. And I do group coaching, and I'm I'm, I'm I've dedicated my life to teaching people these skills because you've experienced it. You know what you know what it's like. The stuff I've never seen anything as powerful ever as I've seen when people start using these skills. It changes everything. I really appreciate your passion. And I'm glad that you mentioned about dating relationships, because I also think that is the genesis of parenting and making sure your children are emotionally competent. Because if you're dating and you're in a situation where you yourself feel inferior, then like I'm talking about girls, then they will allow their dates to take advantage of them because they don't know any other way of behaving. This can help them become emotionally competent. Well, that's right. And I mean, these are life skills. They're transformational and foundational life skills. They'll have, and teenagers learn these skills and it completely changes their relationships with their peers. They become confident, they become resilient, they become, they become likable, their peers love being around them because you know, they're listening other people into existence. Uh, they become natural leaders. They, the studies show that when you learn these skills, especially if you learn them at a young age, two to three, that by eight, eight or nine years old, you're two or three grade levels ahead of your peers because you're emotionally competent. I mean, the science out there is ir irrefutable about how this is advantageous to kids if they have parents who are willing to take the time to learn how to do this and then teach the kids how to do it. I often say that social media is both a curse and a blessing. And a, it's a blessing in that you can get information out in remarkable speed, but it's a curse in that you always run the risk of people disagreeing with you and those voices being louder and kind of blocking you out. My point being that often conversations like this have to be one-on-one. -on -one. You have to tell people why you're behaving a certain way and what advantage it is to them for them to embrace it and to start listening to you. Podcasts like this, just letting people know that there is someone out there passionate and who has studied the science and who has put that science, translated that science into actionable steps in a book is also affirming and a good thing. Just a little quick trick. So I obviously have a social media presence and I get my share of uh, comments. I, I guess that's, I'll be neutral about it. All I do is affect label and I never see them again. So if somebody will say, somebody will cuss me out or something, you know, and, you know, you, the typical snide, snarky comments you get. 
in social media, especially when you're a bit of a public figure. And I just say, oh, you're really angry. You feel really disrespected. You don't feel like you're being listened to or appreciated. Never hear from that person again. Thank you for that tidbit. This stuff is powerful. It works in texting, you know, text messaging. I'm not, I hate using text, phone text. Don't ever try to contact me by text because I never look at my phone that way. You want to get a hold of me, email me. I'm not on my phone. I don't, I'm not a slave to my phone. My phone is my slave. I make it work for me, not the other way around. But the same thing, you can do <laughs> affect labeling with texting and it, it works perfectly well. Will you define affect labeling just to make sure that I understand and the listeners understand exactly what you're talking about? Affect labeling can be simply described as listening to and reflecting back the emotional experience of another person. And that is you statements. Using you statements, not I statements. And then the other thing I wanted you to uh, clear up and also to define is what is the prefrontal cortex and why is that so important in developing emotions and in childhood development in general? The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain. It's called prefrontal because it's in the front part of our brains. It's the part of the brain that you could call is, is in charge of executive function. So it's in charge of decision making. It's in charge of evaluation. It's in charge of problem solving, critical thinking, all that sort of stuff. There, it has all different kinds that there are different parts of the prefrontal cortex, different geographies, you might call it. The prefrontal cortex and the emotional centers of the brain, and I should really call them the emotional neural circuits because there's really no such thing as an emotional center. It's not the, the whole brain is engaged in everything. The prefrontal cortex can be easily overwhelmed by the emotional circuitry of the brain. And because the, in evolution, the prefrontal cortex was the last thing, was one of the last parts of evolution towards becoming homo sapiens. The other thing is that, you know, we've only had language as a species for 230,000 years, which in the grand scope of evolution is a very short period of time. But the prefrontal cortex is in charge of, for example, categorizing affect, the feeling, sensations we have of good and bad, pleasant and unpleasant, into emotional experience. Because emotions are cognitive constructs that we have to learn to create. So the prefrontal cortex is in charge of all of that. It can go offline really easily. Tired, not enough food, blood sugar is low, distraction, um, just a million things that can get in the way of the prefrontal cortex operating properly. For an adult and for a child whose prefrontal cortex is developing, it's impossible for the child to stay focused because the prefrontal cortex just is in a growing stage. It's got 18, 19, 20, it's got 25 years it's to develop. And at two years old, there's nothing there. There's very little and there. That's what I wanted. That's why I asked you to actually define it because I want listeners to really understand that this isn't something that a child is doing to get back at them or to make them angry. It's a biological reflex. It's just that's the way it's it is. Biology. It's how we are. That's right. We're hardwired. And we, we impose adult standards on a two-year-old. This is why, as a lawyer, I am absolutely appalled by the idea that we're going to try a 12-year-old as an adult for murder. That's just ridiculous. It's, it, it defies any sense of childhood development, no matter how heinous the crime. That child is not competent, period. And yet, these hardcore, vengeful politicians insist on taking 12-year-olds and treating them as adults for crimes because it gets them elected. Horrible. But on the same standard, my passion is why are we expecting a five-year-old to sit in a classroom for six and seven hours a day 
and learn beyond, how to read and write. Beyond stupid. This is this whole thing of going back to rationality, where we have this distorted view that human beings from the time they're born are rational beings. And all we have to do is discipline them and impose rationality on them, and somehow they're going to magically transform into a five-year-old, 33-year-old. Ridiculous. Beyond stupid. It's abusive, frankly. I want to address, though, because I'm sure some people are going to say, well, how do you discipline a child? Don't they need to be disciplined? Yes, you do need to discipline a child, but the definition of discipline means to guide and to teach. It That's doesn't mean to punish. stick in a corner and punish. Let me just answer this by saying, when you discipline, the first thing you do is de-escalate the child. If the child is emotional and you try to discipline a child while the child is emotional, the teaching will not stick. The punishment will not stick. All that child will know is that he or she is bad, will feel judged, and will not learn anything. So if you want to properly discipline a child and use a misbehavior as a learning moment, a teaching moment, the first thing you have to do is de-escalate. Then you can decide what the appropriate conversation should be, if any, about what to do about it. A child is going to accept discipline a lot better calm than when escalated emotionally. And that's why I had said earlier about establishing the expectations for behavior before you enter into a situation. We're going to go to the grocery store. I'm not going to buy candy today. We bought candy yesterday or tomorrow we're going to the ice cream store. So I'm not buying ice cream today. Be clear about what you expect that child to do and how that you expect that child to behave. And most of the time, the children will respect that. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Set, set boundaries and set clear expectations. And do not expect your child to act like an adult. So if people want to find out more about my work, I invite them to go to my website, dougnoll.com. My email is doug at dougnoll.com. And I answer all my own emails. So I'm happy to respond to any question that anybody who's listening to this has. Just feel free to reach out to me and I'll be glad to email you right back. Our second guest is Joyce Fields, an author who has combined her passion for writing with her mission to inspire people to make the world a better place. The mother of two sons, eight grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren, she shares with us the 12 ingredients she says families need to raise great children. Her book, Mother's Dozen, An Easy Recipe for Raising Great Kids, draws upon the values her family has passed down from generation to generation. Let's talk about Mother's Dozen, an easy recipe for raising great kids. Mm -hmm. What led me to writing it, and it still exists even today, um, was I would see so many young mothers with children uh, in the grocery store, in the department stores and all of that, who were allowing their children to control them. It was, it's like the child was the parent <laughs> instead of the parent is the parent. So I just said, my God, I'm, these people, these young girls do not know a, a thing about trying to raise a child. You know, they're uh, dressing them in designer clothes and all this other stuff. It's just absolutely ridiculous. So uh, I wrote the book, Mother's Dozen, an easy recipe for raising great kids. And I had it translated into Spanish. Let's just look at your 12 categories. The first one is starting from infancy. What's your, what's your words of wisdom about infancy? My words of wisdom are that a newborn is extremely intelligent. 
they can't talk, they can't walk or anything else, but they are very intelligent. They're very sensitive, very astute. So don't underestimate an infant. They can train you instead of you training them. And if you allow it to, that is what will happen. You know, the, the child will be training you instead of you training the child. Give me an example of that, please. When the child starts learning how to eat, when you first start feeding the child food, when my son started eating, he's, he's 50 years old now, his father was a picky eater. And I was not going to have two picky eaters. When he would spit it out, I'd put it back in his mouth. And he, I'd, he'd spit it out and I'd put it back. And he would eat it. So he ended up learning how to like everything that I fed him. Fruits, vegetables, entrees, all of that. And the only thing he doesn't like on to this day is lima beans. Manners. You talk about how you see so many kids, and not just kids, but adults too, I know. who don't have manners. Yeah, isn't that true? What's your philosophy about manners? You teach the child manners by being mannerable to the child. That's how you teach them. You teach them, and almost everybody teaches them to say please and thank you. You got to teach them to say excuse me as well and forgive me. All of those things. Forgive me manners. I like how you talk about teaching your your son good morning and good night. Mm -hmm. Tell the listeners about how you did that. When I would wake him up in the mornings, I would wake him up with a a hug and a kiss and, and good morning. He would be hearing it. Obviously he couldn't talk, but he would be hearing those words over and over again. Good morning. And I would lay him down and I'd say, good night, kiss him. Good night. And then when I accidentally bumped him, I would say, excuse me. And then if I wanted to, for him to give me something, he's a little bit older. And then he would give me something and I'd say, thank you. So that is how you teach manners. You, you, be, you are mannerable to the child. You're modeling the behavior for them. Exactly. And then they, Precisely. they do what they see and mm-hmm. they hear. So yes. my, my youngest grandchild is one. She just turned one in January. And one of the first things she learned to say was thank you, which I was so impressed by. Yes, that's really wonderful. The manners stay with them forever for the rest of their lives. And those are the things that we have to teach. You could never say uh, even uh, just, we couldn't even say lie as kids. You have to say you told a story. <laughs> as you right. told a story. Each culture has its own norms. Uh-huh. But they're all good. I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with any of them. No, no, not at all. It's just interesting how each and even Uh just different geographic areas of the United States has different mannerisms and different norms. That's just like here in uh, California. We're from Michigan. So in Michigan, soda pop is called pop. And here in California, it's called soda. (laughs) That was the biggest thing. (laughs) In the South, if you want soda or soda pop, if you say, I want a Coke, that just is the generic term for soda. It doesn't necessarily mean Coca-Cola. It means, oh wow, I don't know, RC, cola, orange, whatever. It's just like, yeah. I want a Coke. And then you get whatever soda is available. <laughs> wow. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> That's weird. 
So let's talk about a love for learning. How do you instill that in, in children? What, what are your recommendations? My recommendation is when they, um, you, you read to them as infants, even when they're in the womb, what a lot of mothers read while they're pregnant, read to the baby. So uh, then you, you read to them. Once they start school, then you are really hot to trot to get their school supplies, to make them see how important that is. You get that? And then take the child with you to get the school supplies. And um, when we would sit down at the kitchen table to go over his, now I'm, I'm a, a, a English lover, word lover, you know, I'm a wordsmith. So, so um, with English, math wasn't so much, but with English, I would have him, he, when he started writing, and I would say, oh, that E is really nice, or that L is really looks good. And then I'd say, now that M looks like it's about to fall off the cliff, you know? So, and I would make, a, <laughs> make it a fun experience for him when he was learning how to read and write. But most important, I think, was taking him with me to get his school supplies and we got them within the next two days after the teacher sent the, uh, the thing home uh, to the list of supplies. And we got them with, within two days after I got them because I wanted him to see the importance to me. Then I hope that it would transfer to him. And it did. I love the way you reinforced proper handwriting without being negative. You just said, oh, the M looks like it's going to fall off the page. I mean, that wasn't negative, but it was mm -mm. saying to him, oh, I can't be quite so sloppy. I've got to write this yeah, a lot neater exactly. now. And Carolyn, his handwriting is absolutely gorgeous today. Oh, that oh, is wonderful. Yes, it is beautiful handwriting. And that's just and he's teaching it to his children. I'm teaching them cursive now. Good. And then um, so many kids are not learning cursive. Yeah, I'm teaching it to them. Uh, they're doing extremely well. Uh, Medina is ten, and Dakari he's eight, and they're they're learning cursive and loving it. I always felt that learning cursive writing was easier than learning how to print because I think so for the too. most part, your yeah your pencil stays on the paper, so it becomes a pretty fluid motion exactly as opposed to having you to pick, pick up, up your pencil yeah, yeah. yes I'm and then you sure lose the your only spot. other person I've heard say that <laughs> <laughs> we're weird Carolyn <laughs> well when you when you look at a child's printing and it's mm -hmm. not neat on the line we are expecting young children to have good spatial relationship mm -hmm. awareness yes. and it is not in their biology to do that which is why I think cursive writing really should be taught to them at a much earlier age. In fact, before printing. I, I totally agree. You preaching to the choir, girl. <laughs> well, like I said, I agreed with a lot in your book. Yeah. So let's talk about how do we teach children to be responsible beings? I think that you start that with picking up after themselves. A two, let's see, an 18 month old child is old enough to pick up the toy that was left on the floor and put it 
wherever you keep your toys. So that's old enough to start doing that. A four or five-year-old is old enough to start sweeping the floor, making an attempt at it. So don't allow children to not have chores and responsibilities. They will, it will transfer to uh, their entire lives. You have to give them well, responsibilities. Well, I, I think what I saw in your book was you teach them responsibility at home and mm-hmm. then they have that sense of responsibility when they go to school and when they're out in public. Yes, most definitely. So everything starts at it home. all interrelates. It starts at home. Yes, everything starts at home. And that's why it's so important that children have a good foundation from home. Right. Even something as simple as when you take off your clothes, put them in the clothes hamper. Don't just throw them on the floor. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because then I don't know which clothes are clean and which clothes are dirty. Exactly. And I I taught him how to wash his, his own clothes because I thought about his wife or girlfriend in the future. I didn't want him to be um, that kind of a lazy kind of person, you know? So I taught him responsibilities. Yeah, I taught him how to cook. I taught him how to wash, how to iron. He was, when he was 10, he was ironing, his, washing and ironing his own clothes. Not because I didn't want to, but because I wanted him to learn. <laughs> Well, my husband and I had the same kind of philosophy when the boys were in sports and they would come home after practice in these smelly uniforms that mm-hmm. they then needed the next day. It's like, all right, let's go to the laundry room and let's show you how to wash them. So yes. it's your responsibility to wash your uniforms. Mm-hmm. That's good. And that's we a- always said this. We said the same thing. We were teaching our sons to be good husbands. That's right. Yes. And uh, um, the responsibility, uh, you have to teach them to take care of themselves because maybe they won't get married. And you don't want to put that on any female that they're going to have to do everything for him, for your son. That's totally cruel, I think. Well, I have to tell you, both of my sons are excellent cooks and both mine of them is are too. quite handy around the house. Yes, So is mine. We did a good job. Yeah, we, <laughs> we did, did a good job, Joyce. Too. And he even tells me that we did a good job. And he looks at his friends, even to the point where when he was little, he would call his friends' homes and whomever would answer he would speak to them, ask them how they were doing, because I taught him that. And I said, whenever you call anybody's house, speak to the person who answers the phone. Don't just say, when I speak to so-and-so, you know, ask. And his, when he got a little bit older, he said that the mothers of his friends always told him he was so mannerable when he called. He asked them how they were doing and everything before he asked to speak to whomever he asked to speak to. And so that carried through for him as well. He got compliments from his friend's mothers. It's nice to go out to the community as a mom and have another parent say, oh, your son, your daughter is such a delight. We really enjoy knowing her. Yes. That always made me feel so good. And uh, another thing is that uh, I taught him and and he talks about this, this just last week, he was talking about this. When he goes someplace, if he wants something to drink or something to eat, he takes it with him and he takes enough for several people 
so that when he leaves, he leaves the food and whatever he bought to drink there. He doesn't take it with him. He leaves it there. And he talks about how he does that. When he wants something, he takes it with him to wherever he's going. I also like how you, you were talking about teaching your son independence. And I did the same thing with my children and I do it with my grandchildren when I'm with them and have the opportunity about picking out clothing. I will give them choices mm-hmm. and then they can select from the choices I've given them. Yes. And that way they feel a sense of independence and a responsibility mm-hmm. and they're happy with what they're wearing. Exactly. Exactly. I did the same thing. They, you, you give them an opportunity to choose. The last page of the book is uh, what makes my son so great. He is always mannerable. He is very polite and respectful, especially with his elders. He loves to learn and experiments with new approaches in order to learn more. He is a responsible person and does not expect others to pay for his mistakes or wrong choices. He suffers negative consequences with dignity. He consciously lives his life with rules, order, and organization, thereby minimizing tension, stress, anger, conflict, and confusion. He is independent and seldom borrows or asks for assistance. He is exceedingly spiritual with a powerful belief in God. He regularly vocalizes his awareness of and and thankfulness for his many blessings. He enjoys giving and receiving hugs and kisses. He usually takes care of must before shoulds, needs before wants, and business before pleasure. He demonstrates that he can effectively follow rules or instructions when appropriate. He is patient, seldom loses his temper, and uses time wisely. And the last one, he has a truckload of family members and friends who love, admire, and respect him and often seek his opinion or point of view. And that includes me. I often seek his opinion or point of view. And I'm his mother. Well, you have raised an awesome son. I wish members of our elected officials, like whether it's state or national, I wish they could listen to your rules and have learned those manners and responsibilities and attitudes about being good citizens. That's an awesome compliment, Carolyn. That is an awesome compliment. Thank you. Well, I I think you're welcome. You just have given us just down to earth, practical knowledge and, and wisdom that our great grandparents gave us. Mm -hmm. And it, none of this is rocket science. It's just using common sense. And one of the one of the things that my mother said to me and to my sister, but I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, she's, I definitely remember her telling me is think, T-H-I-N-K, think. <laughs> and it was always, what she meant was, don't do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Think about being mannerly, being independent, being mm-hmm. respectful. And if you think, then you're going to make the right choices. Mm-hmm. And I always, I mean, I actually talk with my mom about that on a frequent basis, how I am so grateful that she said that to me so often yes. because it has made me, helped make me the person yes. I am today. Yes. And I really appreciate that. I, I was just on another podcast and I, and I said, there's always time to stop and think. 
people don't, you think so fast. You put the computers to shame. Computers are based on human minds. Our minds are faster than any computer that they could even make. So you always have time to stop and think. Even if you have to say the words, give me a minute. Let me think about that. I'm going to sleep on it. I'll let you know tomorrow. Whatever. You always have time to stop and think. Don't allow right. the, the pressures of life to rush you into making decisions and choices. Where can people find you? My website is goodshortbooks.com. There are 11 books there. My sister wrote one about dogs and I wrote 10. You can reach me by email at goodshortbooks at yahoo.com. Send me an email. I'll, I go into my email 50 million times a day. So I'll see the emails. And do you have a blog as well? Yes, I do. It is called lineofserenity.wordpress.com. Is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't discussed? I just, you just have to be patient when you're raising children. You cannot be impatient raising children. And not only that, you got to teach them to be patient as well. Teaching a child to be patient means you got to teach a child to wait. Wait for your cookie. Wait for your treat. That's how you teach patients. Have, have you seen or read about the study where they give the <laughs> child a marshmallow and they say, now, don't eat this until I come back. And when I come back, if you haven't eaten it, I will give you two marshmallows. Mm -hmm. And I then the, the person, the researcher leaves. Mm -hmm. And it is amazing at the number of children who have self-control and are willing to wait because mm -hmm. they know the reward is two marshmallows. Yes. So my, I had been intending to do that with my grandchildren and just never did it. So my younger son did it with his three children. And I am so proud of them because each of them actually waited until Good. the dad got back and they got their two marshmallows. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's the way yeah. to do it. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.